Okay, let's go, let's go, 10 o'clock, let's go, let's go, here we go. Here we go, let's pray. Fold your hands, close your eyes. Third week of Epiphany, we're on the way to Lent, this is almost it. Almighty God, everlasting Father, who called the Gentiles to enter fellowship with your Son, and wills that all human beings be saved, grant, we beg you, that the voice of your word goes to every land, that the gospel is proclaimed to every creature, and that every nation comes to thank and to serve you through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, great to see you. Uh, under the new start right at 10 o'clock regime, we're starting at four minutes after, so there you go. Uh, let's see, put a lot of money in the basket. So here's what, I, you know, there's this thing called Lutheran Emergency Response Team, and we've got a bunch of people who do this. Now, it used to be that they, you know, would go out and just help where there's a tornado or a flood or something like that. But no, now they want a great big trailer so they can pull a lot of stuff. I think it's not only bulldozers and chainsaws. It might be tubas and saxophones. I think that they're going to march in formation at many of these places. So they need money for a trailer, and if we could pay for it, that would be fantastic. So this would be a thing uh, that St. John, it's a 28-foot trailer that St. John could load up all their stuff and go help other people. Um, our guys are, have a great reputation when I talk around the district to other places. They know when the St. John people, men and women, show up um, that everything's going to be okay. So if you've got a little extra money, toss it in there. Um, we'll probably throw some mana money in there, and somehow we'll get this thing bought. It's about $16,000, so it'll be a good, but it'll be good. I mean, it all goes towards somebody else, right? So that's nice. Just in case you're keeping score for Christmas sharing, I think we gave forty-two dollars or $43,000 away. Uh, and I think for Gifts for Grace, John and I are still calculating, but John, if you're here, is it ten or 11000 12000 It's probably close to $10,000. So that was good. They were very happy. You know, they came out and made you pancakes and got $10,000. That was a pretty good, that was a pretty good deal. But I mean, it's nice. The kids are so nice. I can't leave. They'd get up and drive out here, and they're always here. You know, we roll in about 7 o'clock, and they're always here, and they're ready to go, and they're very polite. That's a very, so thanks to the Thorns for doing that, and Carol Holter for running the other bit, and and to all of you. So keep going. There's always a lot of good to do. Uh, Lent is coming up. You should already be thinking about your prayers. And maybe uh, if you're going to have a fast this year, think about, try to think about how we talked about that in years past, about fasting being a response to a sacred moment. And keep it under control. You know, if you, if you decide to do, do a doable thing, make sure that you... Um, Make sure that you choose to, you want uh, an attainable but not an ascetic goal for most of you. You have regular lives, but you just remember that um, when the pinch comes, you know, you remember, you know, why the pinch is there. So Lent is not, not far away. I think it's February 17 or something. Is that Wednesday? Anybody know? What is it? Whew, I better get going on that sermon. I'm a week behind. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, men's retreat, as always, uh, there's about 60 guys that have signed up. That's fantastic. The sign-up list is downstairs on the bench as you come in. If you could sign up, that would be great. Now, just remember, there's no cost, right? You can come Friday evening. You can come Saturday morning. You can come um, both times. There's no cost. The food is all included. Everything is good. The, the trick is it's cheaper for us to, to get hotel rooms than it is to pay for the food. So we always get a block of hotel rooms, and several guys sign up. If you want a hotel room, you know, sign up now. Talk to John Crow, but... Um, we always know that there are people who are going to stay up late, mostly the under 30 set, 35. <laughs> These guys right here, I mean, they're just, they, I mean, I'm, I'm at 10 o'clock, I'm checking out and they're making fun of me. So, uh, but you know, we want, it's, so there's, there, there are always people who stay overnight, but it all works out. But come anytime, it's also a great chance to bring somebody 
who's, I mean, it's, it couldn't be a safer environment for somebody who doesn't know about the church. It's James Busher, a uh, bright boy from the seminary. Uh, I think he's going to talk about the creed. knows a lot about martyrdom in the early church. I think he was an Irenaeus specialist, is that right? So uh, he's been here once before. He did a Saturday seminar 10 years ago or so, so we know it'll work for us. So try to sign up. Just you make John Crow's life easier because they're always asking him about how many tables to set up, how much food to have, how many rooms we want, all of that kind of stuff. Okay, good to go. Questions about anything? Otherwise, pop out your Bibles. Uh, Hebrews 1. Now here's the thing. This isn't an empty exercise. And it's kind of an interesting thing, because later you're going to have whoever wrote this saying to these folks, hey, grow up, would you? Could you grow up? But the thing is, is that we, when we hear this, there is so much for us to learn. Uh, They were Jews, it seems, and so they knew the history. So he could just say things, and they would all pick it up. For us, it's a little more difficult Uh, Hebrews is about half an inch from the right edge of your Bible, okay? Hebrews, James, might only be three-eighths of an inch. We'll see. But remember, he's he's got this glorious style, and he's he's really trying to do three things. He's trying to say, that's them, that's that's you, let's go. Those three things, right? He's trying to say, hey, you remember how it used to be? And then he tries to say what every good preacher does. This is a sermon. He tries to say, that's you. That is this. This is that. That's you, right? And let's go. Like, let's go. Because so often there is this, um, you know, there's this notion that, uh, you know, especially now, you know, originally is just something you think about, you know, or just, it's just kind of this block of virtue that's hanging out there but never really accessed. No, the Hebrews thought you were one bundle of stuff. Even though he talks about something for your mind to see and something for your heart to love and something for your hand to choose, even though he talks about all those things, it's a bundle. He doesn't split it apart like the Greeks do, right? So it's, it's, this is your story. This is your story. Let's go. Let's do some good. Grow up, do some good, pay attention. Here we go. Okay, so all of that is bundled up in here. And it's, besides that, the guy's a genius. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, so in the old days, it was guys talking. But then, of course, and this is, you know, you catch the drift here because John talks about Jesus as the word from forever, the word eternal. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. You know, he words a son to us. He words the word to us, right? In, the, in, in, in many times, in various ways, God spoke to our fathers of old by the prophets. But you lucky folks... You very, very lucky folks, right? You're very fortunate because in these last days, he speaks to you in flesh and blood, in the word incarnate. It's great stuff. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. So on your days when you think that uh, the world is overrun by the demonic and the sinful, you know, I I heard, I think on the news this morning, 200 shootings in Chicago in the first 21 days of the year. I mean, that's really, I mean, that's not even like, that's almost incomprehensible. You live in a place where 10 people a day get shot. That's really, I mean, that's really something, right? And you could follow, trace the news, and if you follow enough feeds, you could, you know, want to sit alone at home in the dark. We're, but here's the thing. This all belongs to Jesus. He is the agent of creation. He is the heir of all things. He made it at the Father's bidding. He will inherit it at the Father's behest. That's what it says here. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son 
through whom he created the world, whom he appointed the heir of all things, if you want the linear order. So the father asked the son to create, and then the father asked the son to inherit, to care for, to love, to surround, right? So the darkness may have a go at you, but the darkness in the end, you know, will not have the final say. And you should remember that on your worst days. It's genius stuff. The reason why it's going to be okay for you is the incarnation. Because the world in which you live belongs to Jesus. Okay? Jesus reflects the glory of God. So the glory is holiness. It's this technical word. You know, we've talked about this before. Glory is a technical word for when holiness, the holiness that just permeates heaven. So heaven is this holy, bright, wonderful, warm place. When you think about those who have died before you, I mean, this is the best, right? It's this wonderful place where all things are restored and all things are made new, where the character of God just floods the landscape, okay? When that holiness makes an appearance on earth, whenever it makes an appearance on earth, it's called glory. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. The angels sing. Why do they say that? Because in the manger, the holiness of God lies. So here it is again. He reflects, you know, it's like a mirror. He reflects. It's going to be more than a mirror because he's already told you that he's a son and an heir and a reflector. And, and in a moment, he's going to say he's, he's one stamped like a coin. Boom, right? He has the impress of his nature. What he's trying to do is to describe to you all the things that happen in the creed, which is, you notice the creed is short about the Father and short about the Holy Spirit in the church because that's not the things that people are really bothered by. What they were really concerned about is who is Jesus. And that's why the, you, know, you, only, you only argue about the things in your family that are contentious. Everything else, everybody just nods along to. Well, I mean, people pretty much nodded along in the first centuries of the church to the Father and the Holy Spirit. But how the Son is related to the Father and the Holy Spirit, that's what they argued about. That's what they tried to hammer out. And you can see that happening already here. This is how you have to talk about him. He's the reflection of glory. He's an heir. He's the agent of creation. He's the stamp of the divine nature. That's what's happening already here. It's already being, being fleshed out, if you will. And that's why the creed, that part of the creed is so long, so there'll be no misunderstanding uh, about who Jesus is, okay? He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. So he does, in fact, Jesus, you know, however bad it gets for you, Jesus holds the entire world. He actually, nothing happens outside God's hands, right? There's nothing that happens outside God's hands, nothing in your life. And um, your death relativizes that. You know, you're going to live, you know, 70, 80 years if you're lucky, you know, says the Psalms. Um, you know, you can live 70 or 80 years, which seems, and so often we have the sense that everything's got to get done in these 60 or 70 or 80 years. And if they're not done, things are lost. You always have to think about your life as having a beginning, but not having an end, right? It, your, life doesn't, your life keeps going. And your life is, what you live here on earth is a very small part of how long you will live, right? So it's going to be all right. What do you do? You go to church, you take the Eucharist, you don't have any enemies, you love God. You're generous, you're merciful, you give a good witness, you get up and do it again. That's a godly life. That is a life in the image of God. That's the life in the image of Christ. That's what it means to follow me. That's what Lent is all about, okay? So this is all, I mean, you can just, this just, just, just seeps out of this text. 
He reflects the glory of God. He bears the very stamp of his nature. He upholds the universe with his word of power. And then, you know, how it goes from there. So that's, that's all that we did last week. So think about what's trying to happen. This guy is trying to give a sermon that not only gives examples about how God has been faithful in the past, but says, God is being faithful to you right now. Okay? And where he's most faithful to you is at the altar. Go to church. Because if you don't go, you're going to be a poor person. If you don't go, at some point, you're going to be so worn down that you'll give up. At some point, as one of the Marja comments said a few weeks ago, if your heart is empty, the demons move in. All right? I mean, so just, it's just this, it, I can give you a thousand reasons to, to go to church, but that's what the guy at Hebrews, later he's going to say, you know, at the end of the chapter, he's going to say, don't neglect the assembly. Don't stop going to church. Why? Not because good girls and boys go to church, but because this is where God reveals it all. Man, when you are at the Eucharist, that is everything. There's the glory of God. There's the stamp of his nature. There's divine instruction. There's divine power. There's divine consolation. There's the guarantee of eternal life. It's all happening to you when you're here. Why wouldn't you have that? Um, Because we're stupid, because we're sinful, because we listen to other people more than we listen to baby Jesus. There's a thousand reasons why we don't do it. Don't do that. Amen. All right, so, um, all right, you good? So now we're all the way. And what he tries to do now is he's going to try to say to you, he's going to give you, a, you know, a range of reasons. And I'm, I'm taking them out of order, but I'm sort of, you know, I'm just going to kind of take them in the way that they might be more persuasive. First, you get a glimpse of heaven. When you come to church, you get a glimpse of heaven, okay? And, it, uh, oof, I mean, that is, that's, just, that's just great stuff. So I'm just now, just at the start of this outline, you know, why they go to church. Um, and I gave you the old thing, which you've seen a thousand times before, but it basically boils down to your sins aren't good for you. Why don't you sin? The same reason you don't put your nose in the slicer at the deli. It's not a good idea. Why don't you sin? Same reason you don't hit your thumb with a hammer, right? Why don't you sin? Because it might seem like it's going to be fun when you're doing what all the other cool kids are doing, but this is not going to turn out well, okay? So, I mean, Kapan, this great Kapan quote, the reason for not going out and sinning all you want is the same for not going down, going out and putting your nose in the slicing machine. It's dumb, stupid, it's no fun. Some individual sins may have pleasure still attached to them. Now, see, this is the thing. We, we, you could, when you argue with people, they'll say, but I like this, but I enjoy this, but this is what's important to me. This is what's good for me. Well, it's good for you in a very limited way. You saw in the psalm today, it was very interesting when the psalm talks about what refreshes you, what blesses you, what you enjoy, that refrain we sung between the lessons today. It was very interesting that God tells you exactly what will refresh you. You know, it doesn't exactly have to do with going to Miami, although going to Miami may help. But what really refreshes you is going to church. Okay? So, um, you know, you can just sort of get that. And then this great distinction of not what I've got to do, but what I get to do. I mean, in a little, in a little minute, you're going to see that what you get to do is get close to God's throne. And that's what you get to do. You get to come close to God and still be safe. It's really a quite remarkable thing that you can come close and you're not incinerated. You come close and God welcomes you with open arms. It's really, it's really quite a remarkable thing. So um, you get this text in Hebrews 4, 4 to 16. That's what we're going to do today. So just spin a couple of pages to Hebrews 4. 
14 to 16. 14 to 16, okay? And I am at point four on the outline if you keep on score. So just a little quick read from this. Uh, you know, in the old days, you know, in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to you by his son. Now, what's his son do for you? 14. And remember, he's talking to people who are, who are they're Hebrews, right? They're Hebrews, they're Jews. So they know this, and this all rings in. We have to stop and explain it a little bit for them. This would have just been so clear. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. All right, now, already this image, right? We have this great high priest. In, in chapter 1, Jesus comes down to earth. In chapter 4, Jesus takes the round trip. We have this high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now you have a little bit of a mix of a metaphor, it seems to us, but actually it'll turn out to be literally true. He's a high priest who's passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's possible. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us whenever we're in trouble. Okay, so now slowly. Kind of the first thing to pull from this, I'm right at point four, is you shouldn't take this world too seriously. It's easy for us to you know, become very, very focused on our lives, our self, our success, our children, you know, politics, nations, you know, people blowing other people up. It's very easy to take things a bit too seriously. It's, a, it's easy to become enamored of what's going on around us. Sometimes it can even, we can take it so seriously and get so concerned about it that we can't even enjoy it. Right? That's, that's not the point. Um, you just, you're, again, there's a way, in the way that your long life, your own eternal life, relativizes your life here on earth, the fact that there's a heaven relativizes, you know, that the world is spinning on its axis. Um, this isn't our place, right? You're here, but, you know, someday you're going to be somewhere else. And if you want to go home to your real home, big H, what you do is follow Jesus, right? That's the point. Already people would be thinking to themselves, the high priest is doing the work for me. You remember how this works for the high priest? For the people and for himself he makes sacrifice. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, he goes into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the mercy seat is, right? I'm giving you the, I'm giving you the, um, I'm giving you the pre-temple history now, right? The tabernacle. So for the tabernacle, they still have the Ark. Once a year he goes in. What does he do? He takes in blood, right? A payment for himself. And he takes in blood that makes a payment for the people. And God lives, or God sits, on the mercy seat waiting. So imagine it this way. You have a room like this. In the middle of the room is the Ark of the Covenant. And then around that are these tapestries. Just think kind of oriental carpets, okay? You have these tapestries that surround it and keep it very dark. And you remember he's supposed to swing incense just to put up an extra smoke screen so that he doesn't actually glimpse God. 
You know, so because you don't want to see God face to face, that could be the end of you, right? Which is another amazing thing about Jesus, that people can look into his face. Or you can be blessed today and say, the Lord turn his face to you. Lift up his countenance, turn his face to you, look with you at favor. So God can look you in the face and bless you and not destroy you. Well, what happens is, is in the, on, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, he goes in to the Ark of the Covenant and he puts blood there as an atonement, as an expiation, as a propitiation. All fancy words for calming everything down and restoring the relationship. So things are paid. Things are made right. Wrongs are made right. Um, anger is soothed. You know, all the things that the, all those all those things you talk about that happens on the Day of Atonement. Everything works out. Okay. So, um, and it's in the end you see this happening. So now think of the sermon again. That happened over and over and over again before we got to Jerusalem. It happened over and over and over again when we had a temple. Right? And now it finally happens for you in the person of Jesus. Jesus builds a bridge between earth and heaven. Jesus is the one who leads you home. Jesus is the one who makes you safe. Right? Jesus is the one who shows the way. Jesus is the one who says, you're in and not out, and hence the title, you know, you, know, you clubbers out there. Jesus is the greatest doorman at your favorite club. I mean, that's what's happening here. You know, the, the, the behind the rope? You used to be behind the rope. You're not behind the rope anymore. Come in. Discount double check. Okay, so um, <laughs> just seeing if you watch TV or not, okay? Here, when it says, you know, great, it's like great means greatest. It's a, it's a turn of the phrase here. Where it says, it's like Jesus is the greatest high priest. Why is he the greatest high priest? Well, in an objective way, because he's human and divine. In a subjective way, because he finally gets it done, it doesn't have to be done anymore. Like he finally gets a period on the end of this atonement sentence. Jesus is going to take care of you. He's going to fix it all up, pay all your debts, make everybody happy, right? Calm everybody down. And then beyond that, it's not just one of those things where everybody stops talking. No, it's quite the opposite. You know, the family is all back together again. Still good? There's so much coming out of Jesse. Since we have the greatest high priest who has passed through the heavens, so Jesus moves from here to there. Already, you can think about um, you should, I mean, when they hear that, you know, what they would hear would be Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob is running away because he stole the blessing? And he puts his head down on a pillow and he has a dream. And he dreams that there is this ladder between earth and heaven, and he renames the place Bethel, the house of God. Fast forward. John 2, 1, end of John 1, when they're seeking him out, and Jesus says to Nathaniel, hey, stick around, and you'll see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Basically, Jesus says, I'm the ladder. Now Hebrews picks up. He's the ladder. He's the bridge. Jesus is the connection. Jesus is the way. You can describe it however you want. The point is, Jesus comes down, what? To connect heaven and earth. Why? Because you need access. Because if you're left alone, you're done for. Make sense? If, you, if you're all about, if you, the first sin is to have other gods. If you, if you think you can make it on your own, you're done for, right? It's the, 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 very, the very first and only sin is to think that you're God. 
That's the only sin there is. Every other sin is kind of a derivative of that. So you have this sense that um, Jesus is the greatest because Jesus shows the way home and Jesus makes it right. So then this final thing, let us hold fast um, to our confession, right? Or let's, what, basically what this means is let us hold fast to the facts. I didn't do this last week, but I put it in the notes where it says, you probably could quote to me Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the um, conviction of things not seen. It's interesting, the word assurance, we normally would take as, uh, it's apostasis, which we would normally take as, um, when we talk about assurance, it's like, I, I guarantee you, right? Like it's something, or I believe in this, or I think that it's true, or you should think that it's true. Actually, there's a way to read that that's much stronger. Apostasis is stuff. So faith is the, um, the stuff, the substance, the real things, the facts of what you've been hoped for. It changes the entire character of it. You know, what, what faith is is the delivery, right? The delivery, it's more like a creed than it is about you singing, uh, you know, I, Jesus loves me. This is like, there's this objective stuff going on. This is what he's talking about. He's like, you live in this world, and it's, it's really confusing, and there's a lot going on. Pay attention to this. These are the things that are most important. That God creates a world, that God loves you, that the word becomes flesh, that he becomes your high priest, and that he pulls you back up to heaven. That's the stuff, the substance of what's important. So what he's saying is, hold on to the facts. It's not so much like, couldn't you screw up a little more faith? That's not it. It's like, it's right in front of you. It's objective. Like, it, it just happened. It doesn't matter if you believe that it happened or not. It actually happened, so pay attention to it. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, so when he says, you know, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, he's just telling you, Jesus rose from the dead, and then he ascended. Right? These are just the facts of the matter. Now, you can believe the facts or not believe the facts, but this is the stuff that everybody knows. So, and, and there, see, he's already, they're already presuming this. You know that Jesus came down. You know that Jesus went up. You know that Jesus did all that for you. Now you should just hold on to that, okay? I'm turning the page to um, F. When they tested Jesus, both IQ and EQ, he had a high EQ. This is very, very important for you. Now, if you don't know what this is, we're going to stop and, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. What? <laughs> Jesus' emotional ability, you see. I actually, I'm, I'm only, you know, people have decided now to be successful in life. Makes sense. It's not just enough to be smart. It's extraordinarily important to be empathetic, for example. It's one of the most critical things in problem solving is to be able to read the room, see the problem, understand how other people feel, engage it. I mean, every, every good leader everywhere is all about now you know, having a high EQ, a high emotional intelligence. Every, every good problem solver, every creative problem solver, it's not just enough to know the facts. So you've already got the facts. It's how the facts fit together and how that affects other people, okay? So that's exactly what it goes here. You didn't have to go to the Harvard Business Review. You can get it right here. We, have a high, we, have, we don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with us, so a double negative. We don't have a high priest who's unable. Is Jesus, Jesus, let me put it in the positive. Jesus understands you. Jesus understands what you're going through. Jesus understands what troubles you. You know why? It was the little margin comment in the corner today. Hey, Jesus is what, like, right about the Eucharist. It's Francis de Salle maybe, but in the bottom it was very interesting. 
Hey, Jesus was on the run. Jesus was homeless. Jesus was a refugee going to Egypt. Jesus was poor. Jesus was a working man. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was reviled, right? Anything that you faced, Jesus himself has faced. You just, you just look at his story. Whatever, you know, this is why we often say, you know, I'm the only one. And, and one of the great fallacies of, you know, there's a lot of good things that came out of the 20th century. One of the great fallacies is when people, you, know, you were sort of forbidden to say to people, I understand. Now, people were not saying, I mean, nobody was saying, I understand exactly how your life is, exactly with your child and exactly your wife and exactly with your job. Nobody's saying that. Basically, what people are saying is, hey, I've been through this, something like this too. Right? I, I get it. I mean, my, you know, pick something. You know, my wife left me. My kids went off the rails. My, I lost my job. I know, I, you know, my dad died young. Pick something. You'll find somebody else in the room who suffered the same thing. This is what Jesus is talking about here. That um, he actually, he isn't plastic. You know, Jesus suffers with you. Now, what's really important is we often think of suffering as feeling. One of, the, one of the problems with us is we're so given to our feelings, and I guess, I guess that's okay. But remember we've often talked in the past about how love is a verb. Love is an action before it's a feeling. So if you love him, you'll take him to lunch. Just saying, right? <laughs> You're not breaking. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not enough, you know. I mean, the, the most terrible words in Scripture for me are, you know, where Jesus says to the disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I mean, you say that you love me, but you never do anything. This is disappointing, that is. You know, it's like if, you're, if you do that to your spouse, if your kids do that, if your kids say, yeah, yeah, I love you, Dad, and they never do what you tell them, you're like, you should at least have a question mark ready to go, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is so painful. Well, just it's important for you to understand that when, when this is written, when it talks about Jesus' suffering, suffering here doesn't mean that Jesus feels what you feel. You know, of course he felt horrible things. I mean, you can't be executed as an innocent person and not feel some things deeply. But it's not just the, it's not just the feelings that are being talked about here. He's talking about the action. You know, Jesus actually goes to work. So, um, Jesus... Jesus gives himself up, and I gave you the text later. We're, we don't have time to kind of check it now, but he gives himself up in his body. You know how Jesus shows you that he's gone through everything that you've gone through? He goes through it. Jesus, so Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I understand. He actually goes through it so that you understand. The reason you understand that he understands is because you watch him go through it when the story gets told. So Lent is a miserable time in some, in some ways because you watch the story of an innocent human being, you know, being executed. It's the most unjust thing that ever happened. You know, you have the, a person who's perfectly innocent being executed for convenience, for dislike, for prejudice. Pick what you like, right? right so it's not just that Jesus says, I've read a little history and I understand how it works. Or I watched history from above. I saw that on TV. No, Jesus actually goes through it. I mean, there's a reason Jesus gets crucified. One of the reasons Jesus gets crucified is so not one of us can ever say, I suffered more than Jesus. Right? It's just impossible. That's what the text means when it says, 
he who knew no sin became sin for us. Right? So his, his suffering, his action is deeper than ours ever. Okay? Um, now, gosh, it's, it's interesting how, how little gets revealed when the, this gets translated into English. I feel like I've given you almost a whole different text. Um, why in the world would you believe me? I have no idea. I'll tell you what you should do, though. You know what? This is kind of interesting. You must make seminary way cheaper. You can go home and Google this up. I, seriously, not one of the great. I'll just tell you. If you go home today, if you Google up Hebrews 4.15 and just put GK, Greek, or Greek behind it, Hebrews 4.15, Greek, You'll have all these things that'll come up that'll actually give you extended definition and commentary of the words. It's really quite remarkable. You, what used to cost literally the book bill in your early years at seminary, I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars buying these books that are now, you know, now you can Google it up in, in three seconds. But if you go home and do that, you'll hear that this reads something like this. So I'm just going to kind of take you through where we've been. So starting with 14, since we have the greatest of great high priests who is a bridge between earth and heaven it's Jesus the son of God pay attention to all the stuff he left behind be like Mary ponder it up in your heart treasure it up in your heart for we don't have a high priest who just watches, right? Who doesn't act. We have a high priest who was, Matthew 4, tempted by Satan. It'll be the first Sunday in Lent, right? Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him toward all the things we get tempted by. He's hungry, he's tired, he's alone, and he's tempted by being supreme. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect, He's been tempted as we are. And then this literally could read, yet he kept his distance from sin. The way those words are put together, it actually, it's a time, it's a time and space reference. So what we look like, well, this is how we think. We think, um, you know, we look at sin and then, you know, it just didn't kind of bother him. It actually means more like this. When he saw sin, he kept his distance. I've often, I've often gone through Psalm 1 with you again, but I, 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 would, I would urge you to read Psalm 1 again, which is a classic definition of temptation. What does Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man who, do you remember it? Walks not, right? Let me just read you the first verse. This is how every temptation works. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Walking, walking, walking nor stands in the way of sinners, you're very interesting, or sits in the seat of scoffers. This is exactly how sin works every time. You're walking through your normal life. You see something sinful that looks very interesting, and you sit down and have a chat. And then you're done for. This has often been my experience with either of the Hopkins boys. This is, it's so interesting that Jesus picks up exactly the same thing when it says, 
he, he doesn't know any sin. What it means is he kept his distance. It's like when you see it, you avert your eyes and go the, go the other direction. This is, I mean, I've simply put this to you in this way. Touch holy things, don't touch evil things. It's the sum of the Christian life. Touch holy things, get really close to holy things, and don't touch evil things. Keep your distance, right? It's Psalm 1. Because once you get close enough, there are just some things that you're going to be, it's just going to be impossible for you to resist it. And when you touch it, it contaminates you and you're done for, right? That's the whole point of being washed in baptism. That's the whole point of being um, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's the whole point of carrying the Eucharist around in your body. These are things that radiate holiness. So if you touch an evil thing, you become evil. If you touch a holy thing, you become holy. This, of course, is why you come to church. So you can be touched with the name of Jesus in baptism. So you can be touched with the body and blood. So that when you get to heaven, when you cross the bridge, you are absolutely indestructible. You remember in Revelation 22, verse 4, something like that, it says, when he's sorting the sheep and the goats, it says, he looks around and he sees the name on their foreheads. What else is there but the name of Jesus that was put on you at your baptism, right? So when you get to heaven, the fact of the matter is what, 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 what has currency, that you walk up and you've been tattooed with baptism. It's been put on your flesh, that you, have, you carry the body and blood inside you, and you're, of Jesus, you're indestructible. That's what this is talking about, right? That you don't touch evil things and you do touch good things. Jesus was tempted just like we were. He saw it, and what did he do? He kept his distance, Okay, that's how things work. Um, that is to say that Jesus obeyed, and because of his obedience, we're blessed. I still, you know, every time I see you, want to try to convince you. You know, the two things I, you know, tell, tell um, you know, I, well, love is obedience, okay? Right? Love is obedience. There's no difference. Love fulfills the law. Love is obedience, Happy obedience. Love is engaging the fact of the matter. Love is acting. Love is touching. Love is holding on. It is, of course, a feeling. It does feel good to do good things, but love is action. Jesus loves you so what? He goes to the cross. That's the whole point. Um, I really thought that if I wrote a shorter outline, I would actually get through it. Um, But let me just do verse... I'm going to just turn the page to point K because I want to get to this last line, which is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. See, now again, this is spatial. This is what happens when the priest um, or the congregation comes up to the temple to, to, to go to church. How do you know that you're going to be welcomed? How can you be confident that when you get close to God, you know, he loves you and listens to you? Right? Well, it's because Jesus has gone before you and Jesus has given you access. Um, Wow. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I just want to say one... Ah, boy. Well, there must be at least two more things I'd want to say. This word, again, you know, I mean, you're going to think I'm making this up by the time we're done, but just go home and Google it up. Let us approach with confidence. Once again, this gets translated in a way that makes it seem like it's a subjective thing. I have some confidence. 
I have some confidence that it's all going to work out. What this word, one way this word can be translated is the action of confidence. You can actually translate this, permission to speak freely. This can be translated, let's approach speaking freely. You know the first rule of a dysfunctional family. Never say what's on your mind, right? Just act like nothing's happening. Go to the Thanksgiving table and keep your mouth shut, right? The first rule of a dysfunctional family, never say what's on your mind. What happens when you go to heaven? Utter function. Let us approach with the freedom to say anything that needs to be said. I'll just give you just a quick little thing and then we've got to go. This is extraordinarily important for your prayer life. In the ancient world, there were all sorts of people that surrounded a throne room where the king sat. There were regular people who just worked, and then there were advisors, and then there were family. The people who just worked there, they came and they went and nothing really happened. But for those who were gathered as family and as close advisors, the king actually took their counsel. That's exactly what happens when you pray. So I give you this towards your prayers in Lent. Because you have the freedom behind this, but because you have the freedom to approach Christ, sorry, because you have the freedom to approach the Father through Christ, and because you have the freedom to speak freely, to say whatever's on your mind. This is exactly what happens in your prayers. And in the ancient world, when you were granted a hearing by the king, and when he heard your complaint, if he decided to take it up, it wasn't yours anymore, it was his. It's a remarkable thing, right? You see this in, in Paul when he's being sent to Rome and his little stop in Caesarea Philippi, and the guy says, they got all these charges against you. He says, I'd let you go, except you appealed to Caesar. So it's out of my hands now. You've got to go. This is exactly what happens with your prayers. You leave your prayers. You leave your troubles. All the things you're praying for, speak freely. Say, say anything you want. You can even rage if you want, because families have to be able to take that too. And the Psalms are full of places where the Lord will take your rage, and you know, he can bear it. So if you're going to rage at somebody, have a go at him. Say whatever you want. Say whatever you think. Explain your problem as best you can. Cry yourself to sleep if you need to. Here's the thing. Once the Lord takes that prayer as his own, it's not yours anymore. You're free to check back. You can ask him about it tomorrow. You're praying for your kids. You're praying for your spouse. You're praying about your job. But the great joy the confidence, the relaxation, the con consolation that comes to you is the Heavenly Father says, you're family. You're not just somebody who works here. You're not just an ancillary person. You're actually family, right? Brother to Jesus, so you share his Father. When we pray, how do we pray? Our Father. My Father is your Father. This story is your story. See, it all comes together. So when you say your prayers, God actually says, I'll take care of that. The king says, your problem is my problem. My story is your story. Your story is my story. My problem is your problem. Your problem is my problem. You should probably get some rest. That's all behind this. And it all has to do with proximity, that you can come close to God and be family in the truest and most functional sense, that he loves you and he acts for you. He listens to you and he acts for you. He sends angels to protect you. He solves the troubles you've got. He does things that you can't do. He frankly does miracles. That's all in here. If we were Hebrews, we'd hear more, but because we're not, we've got to work a little bit harder. Um, you know, all that in just, like, in just three verses, it's quite remarkable what's going on.
Got to go. We got to go to church. I love you. I'll see you next week. Um, we'll talk some more about why it's important to come close to go to church, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you soon.